in reality, when you learn the meaning of why you learn, you actually use outdoor, you use uh, communities, you use science and libraries, you use the home environment. In that case, online and physical becomes kind of extensions of each other and integrated with each other. If you want children to really understand the science and mathematics of the world, it has to start with nature. It has to start with being outdoor. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid and News. Today's guest is Dr. Bo Stierna Thompson. He's the Vice President and Chair of Learning Through Play and the Lego Foundation, where he lends his expertise on how children and adults learn through play. He's a spokesperson representing the Lego Foundation and the Lego Brand Group internationally, and he advises leadership teams across Lego entities to attain the overall Lego brand vision of learning through play. He's been a scholar, he's been a visiting scholar, he's done extensive research inside LEGO in MIT and prestigious universities. And I'm very excited about this conversation because we touch on so many aspects. Yes, centering around play, how play and learning are in dynamic relationships with each other, but also how the virtual and physical worlds come together in a hybrid model, which might surprise us in terms of how children relate to each other and play in both environments. We also talk about the role of nature and outdoor play and consolidating learning and creating embodied experiences. And I'm really looking forward to your thoughts on this episode as on every episode. Check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. We always look forward to your comments. Check us out on LinkedIn. And in the meantime, I will leave space for my conversation with Bo Sterner. Hi, Bo. We're so excited to have you on our podcast. I'm really wanting to find out a lot more about your views on play, on learning through play, uh, on really where the world is taking us, given the fact that there's a tension between the physical and the virtual world, uh, and, and maybe what lies on the horizon, maybe beyond the horizon, if we're going to make uh, a wild prediction, and just see where the conversation takes us. So the first question I'll ask is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Uh, thank you very much. I'm delighted to, uh, to talk and discuss here around uh, play and learning and uh, digital and physical and so forth. I'm the chair of Learning Through Play in the Lego Foundation uh, because we have a vision for the foundation and the brand as a whole to really articulate how uh, play is not only like frivolous and something accidental, it's actually something that is unique to human beings that forms our ways to learn, our holistic perspective and skills. And uh, for us and in our work, the main story is that the way we think about learning and playing is actually integrated. Because when children you know, learn new concepts and develop, it actually happens when they are actively engaged, experimenting with the environment. And it's something that forms through their relationships, through their experiences. So if you have a much, <clears throat> a much stronger understanding that the community, the experience around us, are the things that shape how we learn as uh, adults, but also as children, we can much better instigate that into the way we design our environments, the way we create education. And you started to touch on this, or at least certainly the mechanisms or, or the context. I shouldn't really use the word mechanisms. I'll ask you the question we ask all our guests for us to have a common understanding. How do you define learning? That's a very good question because it actually, sometimes it's, uh, it's a thing that that uh, separates uh, many stakeholders in this space uh, because people come from different directions. Our point of view is that learning is a continuous process you are engaged in throughout life. 
And it should help us be creative and it should help us be more motivated to learn. It should be aiming to be a lifelong learner. And when you think about it in that perspective that includes this continuous process of keeping learning, keeping to, to learn new things, it includes a broad range of skills, social, emotional, being creative, uh, being physical. And it also embodies many of the characteristics from being playful because we throw ourselves into the world, we experience, we adapt, uh, we find new and meaningful, interesting things to test out. Uh, many of the, the kind of ways that learning sometimes is understood is either in terms of performance perspective, like you have to quickly adapt to a new situation, uh, like short term, there's something that changes in your environment around you. Uh, and sometimes you have to kind of keep learning and remember new things, which is often like teaching is in school nowadays. You have to quickly remember something for a test. On the other hand, sometimes learning is articulated as development. Uh, this very lifelong adaptation of children and adults uh, when you are in changing circumstances of environments, personal life and careers, which is also an aspect of learning. I think we find ourselves a little in the middle spectrum where we say, well, you have to be a good learner and learn new things by having a playful approach to things. You experiment, you try things out, which is not only about knowledge, but being able to you know, experiment and test to try out things and really understand what do you enjoy? What are you curious about? And how does that work in terms of the system where we have and, and, and the opportunities that we have for play? Why does do you think that play is just taken away uh, to a large extent other than recess, but taken away certainly in most experiences that kids have in school, as well as adults in many ways? It, it is a, a few different reasons, uh, we think, but but obviously the, the first uh, thing that, that, that comes to mind in our research is this standardization logic of education, uh, which many speaks about. You, you have to figure out a way of doing an education system where many children are coming through the system to be equipped with standardized uh, knowledge to be able to go through tests and get enrolled in high school and higher education and so forth. So often that becomes kind of a limiting factor for more holistic whole learner perspective. So what that means for us is that it's not necessarily bad to obviously know particular content and curriculum, but the way to have a deeper understanding of that content and being able to understand that curriculum and apply it to real life situations, you actually need to have emotional confidence. You need to be creative to experiment with uh, how you apply it. You need to be able to socially collaborate with others. So there are some basic things around the social, emotional, and the creative competencies that equip you to keep learning new things. But as long as we think about this as a standardization, everyone should learn the same thing at the same time in the same space, that becomes a, a huge limiting factor. But there is another thing that I think is more in the more societal perspective where in the foundation we are looking for a much more inclusive uh, approach to education. And the challenge we have right now is that there is quite a lot of competition. Um, it's quite a competitive society, quite an unequal society. And with that in mind, you know, dealing with uncertainty becomes a little difficult. People are afraid of taking risks. If you are a family with low resources or, or if you want with high ambitions, you know, one needs to kind of go into that space and comply with, 
the, the tests and, you know, not necessarily interested in trying new things because it's a big risk for, uh, to you. So there's also kind of this, you know, uncertainty, inability to experiment and also sometimes being less equipped to be experimenting because you feel you're going to experiment with your children or your own life. Uh, instead of thinking about this is kind of the key way you have to develop them for a society that's more uncertain. So there's a couple of things I want to I want to pick up here, and, and, and you presented it in two different ways. One of the things about the standardization is also that that individualized experience. But you bring up words like relationship. You bring up so, social collaboration. Learning then becomes a social experience rather than an individual one. Yet our systems are geared to just look at the individual. It, it, it separates the individual from the relationship. Absolutely. I think there are many different factors that we're looking at right now that can help us think more opportunistic about education. And uh, absolutely, the social relationships is one of the ways. Um, because education is set up as a very competitive environment where individuals are kind of trying to get the best grades and not necessarily learning from each other. I mean, know from research studies that you learn obviously from a teacher uh, who have uh, great ways of emphasizing and facilitating dialogue and learning processes, but actually children learn a great deal from when they look at other children in the classroom, when they get information from outside sources and so forth. So learning is a social process, um, but it's also not only a social process from the understanding of people, it's actually a very social material process that you use materials to understand things around you you are socializing with the community outside the school. So there are, there are key boundaries right now in terms of time, how we have set up education systems as kind of chunked down 45 minute units that just stacks up to become like a credential. The kind of boundary of space that you usually think about learning inside the school, but in reality, when you learn, when you really understand concepts and principles and understand the, the meaning of why you learn, you actually use outdoor, you use uh, communities, you use science centers, libraries, you use a home environment and so forth. And it also boundaries of curriculum where we think about knowledge in these segmented you know, units of geography and science and language, where in reality and in practice, many of these things are interlinked in different ways. And finally, I think one of the interesting things when, when you mentioned social experiences is that the concept of expertise, expertise, like who are the ones that can help you the most to be able to be passionate about the thing to do, to be equipped with a broader range of skills and to learn. And the teacher has, or the educators have a key role as a curator, but as you learn so much from people in the community, from people online, from friends and peers, and and other types of communities. So there's a kind of a new way of thinking about how we are more working in an ecosystem uh, than necessarily handing all responsibilities to, to a school. And this allowed us to get into how not just kids, but anyone is going to be able to collaborate online in different ways using translation engines, getting together uh, at a certain time with all their friends, with people who have interests, uh, with anybody who shares commonalities. But before we get that, I just want to explore this idea that you had, uh, this notion that you brought up about fear of taking risk. Why is that? Where does this fear of taking risk come from, from your point of view and your research? It, it is a few different things. Um, uh, I think first, it's a very personal 
uh, an emotional experience you have. Children are not afraid of, usually not afraid of taking risks as the young children, right? Depending on personalities and, and, and so forth. But, but usually that's how they learn. They try new things and mess around in the wardrobe. They turn around the plans so go explore things, but we say, oh, no, don't. Uh, but, but this is because they absorb new kinds of information and they're trying to figure out and understand that by manipulating and trying things out. But as we grow older, I think we become less equipped to take on these risks because we sometimes think we don't need to learn. We actually have already have the habits ingrained that allow us to know what to do. So we are less interested in taking risks, we're less open to take risks because actually we have found you know, our, our cognitive infrastructure have already been kind of fixed in some ways that we, there's a particular way of doing things. So, so that mindset, that habit of mind that becomes more fixed mindset is usually because we learn particular ways of doing things and we don't find it necessarily motivating to kind of challenge that. And that that's a very cognitively neuroscience way of, of, uh, of optimizing our behavior. But when we come to particular socioeconomic groups and so forth of taking risk, I think what we have seen is if you work in an extremely competitive society with limited resources, you have probably a big family, uh, there's a huge responsibility of the family to be able to make a living. And if you don't succeed in getting into school, if you don't succeed to uh, be able to be relevant for the work uh, and job and the high education, uh, it is a big drain on the family. So the whole family loses. So it is the more socioeconomic, unequal, uh, unequal society you have, the more pressure there is to comply with the existing standardization of education and being less open to take risk. Uh, that's a great economic uh, study that looks at that, the love, money, and parenting, it's called. Um, but then I also think that the third issue in, in, you know, places that I live here in Boston and other places, you know, it's, it's not necessarily given right now that the next generation will be better equipped or have better jobs than the past generation. And that's kind of the first time in history that even if you are in a middle class family, uh, you recognize that it is also takes more uh, to some degree, for your children to have a better life. So in that case, there's a realization that that you know this idea about taking risks and and you know not succeeding is something that becomes even more difficult. I would say, I would look more at the optimistic point of view right now. If I speak to policy, whether in in international multilateral organizations or other places. Actually, there's a huge appetite now to think about the main competences we need, the way we can succeed collectively and individually is to be more creative, to be more critical thinkers, to be more collaborative. So what we have now in front of us is trying to adapt the education system, to equip teachers, to find a better vision for education that's more inclusive, more coherent. And I think we are actually on that journey right now, but it's really how, what are the different things we should change in the system to make that real? And what about the nature of play nowadays? My kids, for instance, when they were younger, they played, you know, physically, but now the world of play is, is virtual. And, and as much as it makes me nervous as a parent to have them on screens, I also know it's their social time and they're able to hang out and they talk and they have headsets. How, how is that changing? How are you finding that kids are wired differently now 
in the virtual as opposed to the physical or maybe a complement with the physical? That, that is a, a great question. And uh, it's something that we invest a lot of research and many other partners in that space right now. I think the core thing we are looking at is starting with the neuroscience and the behaviors that is about the main mechanisms of learning, which means no matter if it's, uh, if it's online or physical, it has to have some form of active engagement. If you're sitting passively and just observing content, entertainment and videos and so forth, it has very little to do with learning, little, very little to do with growth. It's basically just consuming material. So it has to be active in the sense that you have to make certain choices. You have to ideally co-create and contribute and negotiate and collaborate. Uh, and even at that point, we move from a space that is more about, um, you know, gives, giving information to people and uh, passively observing that to a more co-creative, collaborative environment. Uh, so that's the first starting point, no matter if it's uh, online or, or physical. The sec second one is really about what kind of social environment one is setting up. What we have seen from many of the research studies we've done is that children do not necessarily form a lot of new relationships online. They actually usually bring the ones they know from the immediate physical environment, from the school and classmates to the online. And sometimes they come around new people, but it's, it's very rarely they actually try to stick in the same circle. So in that case, online and physical, it becomes kind of extensions of each other and integrated with each other. Um, and when, when you look in reality of what children do, we've done some very deep studies of how technologies work right now. They actually blend in, in wonderful different ways. Like the things you are interested in with your friends, whether it's in Minecraft or, or you know, your particular kind of characters or movies or, or things you play with uh, in your everyday environment, are the similar kind of ideas you bring to online communities. Uh, so you actually have a blend of things you play with, you build with, and the things you do online. Um, so it's more like in, emphasizing that it's a much more kind of active, blended way of using technologies. Uh, and it's not about sitting passively in front of a screen in the universe you can't you find meaningful with people you don't know. Um, so what we advocate for, I think the, the, the things that we inherently see works for online communities are based on the characteristics we see from, from play and learning. Uh, things that relates to children. It's uh, creative platforms where they can create their own kind of ideas. It's uh, places where they can communicate in different ways. So through speech, through chat, through like multimodal ways of doing that. Uh, and it's able to connect that universe to kind of real life experiences, conversations with uh, parents and, and communities. And so where is Lego in this? The Lego I remember has bricks. I know there's so much more that, that is happening. How is Lego able to be in a world with um, still thought of and, and known for the little bricks, but at the same time having to adapt and transform itself in, in, in many ways uh, towards these new technologies and these new ways of play? The, the starting point, I think, from, from the perspective of the Lego Foundation, who speaks more deeply into the research and, and, and more broadly uh, a, a perspective across many different types of materials and communities, I think is that the physical, real-life experiential experiences will always exist. Uh, you will always kind of find joy in building things, making things, uh, experiencing environments 
uh, that are hands-on and with families and so on. That's what we've seen during the pandemic also, that you know, as much as we enjoy being connected to communities around us, um, we do that even more interesting when we bring around our mobile phones and when we are in real environments. So the physical is absolutely critical for our development of attention, our development of STEM and science skills, our ability to communicate, perform real relationships. But the second part, which we are really interested in, how can we create uh, more online uh, communities that go into a metaverse discussion to say, what do we want that universe to look like? And I think that's where the discussions will become, become more interesting now, that the qualities we know from play, building and making things, and the, the concept of creativity and learning is the kind of values and ideas we should form the new universe in. So it becomes like maybe a, like a, a democratic instantiation of society and not become like a one entity forming the, the values and shapes that universe. So to be thinking a lot about how, you know, how can the ideas about Lego bricks, you connect, you reconnect, you have a community, you have a passionate, uh, you know, community who can shape that break into multiple different experiences. How can that become the same thing in the universe where you have a socially safe, supportive environment where you can have these types of dialogues? So, so we invest in research in that area and, and a lot of experiments. And I think one of the probably little controversial things in this area is if we really take the, the knowledge and the science of play and how it equips you to understand things, we really learned that the best way to understand the metaverse and other things in that area is to try it out. But you don't understand it. You can't speak to children about it unless you test and try out what it is. And sometimes it becomes a dialogue that children are in these spaces and adults do not make an effort to relate to it, to try it out. Uh, but really finding ways where adults and, and children, teachers and students, uh, parents and families can be in spaces together and have conversations about it. That's how we learn about its boundaries and opportunities, I think. And so you brought up the metaverse, you hinted at Web3 when you talk about decentralization. How do you see those evolving in terms of specifically maybe that that ability to play? And, and I'm asking a question that really is is not only unfair, but in many ways silly because nobody knows at this stage. But what are some of the things that you're seeing come through? Seeing come through in terms of, of the whole body experiences that we're able to have perhaps in the metaverse, the, the, the way it changes, and maybe even bringing in those spaces that create communities virtually. I think it will be a massive transformation. Uh, and it's something people have talked about now for yeah, at least 20, but maybe 50, 60 years. So our work and my past research with MIT Media Lab and other places have, have been talking about how digital changes learning and environment. But I think this is a little different now because as we talk about, it becomes much more blended, much more integrated. Uh, but the way it changes, particularly education, I think is that we're able to access completely new forms of uh, experiences. So if you think about how learning happens and how we remember things and apply things is not only in school. If you're able to think about how technologies support a more ecosystemic understanding of learning, it means that you can spend a little bit of time in school with teachers, form a community, form social relationships, get basic concepts and principles and talk about these. But then you go to the science center with certain type of technologies that you capture portfolio and what you are learning you are able to uh, curate and navigate 
a ton of different types of opportunities that exist uh, digitally, because in reality, the best expertise is not necessarily the ones that are in this space right now. You're able to you know, call in uh, a professor or a friend or a craftsman from a different place in the world. Um, so you're able to bring technologies out into the environment to make you know, time much more, time and space much more flexible, but you're also able to get expertise into uh, into the ways you are supported in the, in the ways you learn. And then I think that if you look at how curriculum is driving a lot of the work in this area, if you're able to more think about, you know, uh, uh, an increased uh, simplification of content and curriculum, you know, that can be available much more broadly worldwide in ways that are much e easy and uh, to, to access. And it means it free up time to use that knowledge and experiment that knowledge to create real projects. So I think this will be a starting point for more experiential, project-based, problem-based learning, inquiry-based learning, collaborative forms of learning, because the building blocks that you usually use to education schools to provide you with is much more freely available. So it gives you opportunities to use platforms to more collaborate on interesting projects and problems. Um, so, so I think it's... Uh, we are really thinking about ways where there's a central role of an educator as a curator, but we need to point to spaces and experiences around the school and the community that you can use. And then the digital becomes the things that stitch that experience together for you as a personal portfolio, as a learning journey that you have agency and empowerment and ownership of. And one of the things, one of the words that you mentioned was simplification of the curriculum, which is something that schools aren't used to doing. They are used to just making those that curriculum fatter, the textbooks uh, heavier. That's a real shift right there and saying, let's simplify, go deeper, but also broader in the sense that we're reaching out in the community for experts. And the community, of course, isn't just our physical community, it's, it's the virtual community. Absolutely. I think that many of the, the institutions we work with, we work with a global set of partners in, in more than 50 countries, but the, the institutions we learn the most from are the ones that use real life experiences as a starting point for a curriculum. So when young children learn math and language, uh, you know, they're going to, they're invited to find, you know, uh, geometries in the environment. They go out and explore circles and find materials and they co-create that uh, in the classroom or they go to find histories and stories in the community. And they use that as a starting point for language. Um, but when you have that interest as a starting point, it's easier for you to kind of find the, the curriculum and ideas and concepts online. So it starts more with interest than necessarily knowing all the curriculum uh, beforehand. Has your research gone into the role of nature or how nature plays a role in, uh, in learning and, and allows ways for play as well? That there, that there is a lot of research in, in nature and outdoor play. Uh, I think, the, and, and, and you know, the, the, the starting point here is if you want children to really understand the science uh, and mathematics uh, of the world, it has to start with nature. It has to start with being outdoor because they understand cause and effect. They understand the texture of materials, understand the differences in wind and weather and so forth. So particularly from a, also from a, from a Danish heritage, you know, that has been the starting point for, for a, a broad range of philosophies in that space. And it's something that I think will be even more important. Um, and also because materials and outdoor 
is the main way to support your uh, what's called executive function, your ability to keep attention. Because when you yourself is exploring the environment, you are literally putting your hand and climbing the trees and it helps reinforce your own self-regulation and mechanisms of attention. So all of that research exists. Um, and I think it, it brings a broad range of benefits, which we know in terms of social and physical and so forth, which again enhance our ability to understand content, uh, content and knowledge. I think the challenge where we get to is how, like with outdoor, like with libraries and community centers and science centers, is how to make that connection to how schools are set up. So in many places around the world, we have to kind of fight for recess and, you know, getting half an hour of breaks and get out on the playgrounds. Um, and as, uh, as an organization that designed our own school in, in, in Denmark, that is an integral part of that piece. But it, the, the key deal will become when, when we equip educators to literally use the environment and say, well, for this geography, a science class, a language, we can literally use this space. And there is a kind of an activity or guide for in which way we can make a campfire and then be able to figure out which way there's uh, heat and uh, color and all that involved in this. Or we can do a community science experiment around climate change and figure out how that becomes a, a discussion about uh, um, uh, equations and other things. So there's, there's quite a competence gap, a, a competence need to find ways to connect that complexity of the environment and opportunities to what a, an educator needs to deliver pragmatically in the classroom. Um, and what we see here is opportunities more in the sense of guided play or guided learning opportunities. If it's mostly in the free space where you say it's recess, it's outdoor, it's exploring things, it's incredibly useful, uh, but it ends up being reduced to these half an hour things. On the other hand, if it becomes very instructional, it takes away the interest and the passion and empowerment of the experience of community, but there are actually guidance. So what it means is when we design ecosystems, when we design science centers outdoor, there still need to be an intentionality and say, well, what we can learn here is that children can actually keep attention. They can collaborate in new ways. They understand color and size and quantities. We can develop a project that allow us to understand this book in more richer ways. So there's, a, there's still an outcome and expectation being formed, but the experience and the outdoor and the community and science centers are actually able to deliver or support that, that, that kind of outcome. Um, so, so we are trying to work now with broad range of museums and outdoor and sciences to say, well, you have extraordinary opportunities with these spaces and these environments, but it becomes a dialogue between the community and the school to which degree that becomes a much much better co-creation uh, collaborative uh, process. And of course, all this is limited by what you mentioned earlier on, which is these 45-minute periods in and out. Yeah, it is, absolutely. And um, there are experiments running, as you absolutely know, right, that it's whether you think more freely about that time, like are you literally limiting the time in school where you say, till now only in school for four days a week? Or are you saying that you do half a, half a day in school? Or you're saying, well, they are in school five days a week, but one week a month, they're literally on a field trip uh, trying to take some of the concepts they have learned in school to apply to a real life project. 
all the other more the radical ideas, you know, it's literally it's literally experiential project-based uh, thematic curriculum, uh, which set a completely new expectations for educators. I think the one of the, the organizations we work with right now is called Big Picture Learning. And they do two out of five days where students are working in the community. So I, I think when we look at the transition of schools right now, we will spend much less time in four to five minute units passively in a classroom and much more being able to use online physical to find information, do projects and uh, investigate the, the, the different resources we have around us. So there's a social capital around us which haven't been, haven't been used yet. But the research that needs to be in place first is to figure out what are the kind of balance in that time? Is it 10%, is it 20, 40? And what are the particular types of uh, structures that we need to be more flexible with? Um, and, and educators and, and educa education, you know, professional development is a critical part of that journey. I'll ask you a couple more questions. Uh, first of all, what book are you reading right now? I have a, I have a, a, a great set of books, like uh, there's something around uh, Wonder that I read, read a lot right now. Um, uh, I have uh, some books uh, around uh, play and learning. Um, and I again wonder in Wonderland. I'm coming back to that with Stephen Johnson. Um, I'm very interested in, in the ways that how do we form motivation in a way that's not you know, strictly only intrinsic and strictly not extrinsic. So in reality, when we are motivated about something, it's not only driven by ourselves as a being, it's also driven our way of becoming something. And that's usually an environmental perspective that is a little extrinsic. So it's kind of that passionate community member, a family member, an educator. So sometimes we break up our thinking into, you know, play is inherently about your own passions and ideas. And sometimes education becomes about other people's ideas and societies. And I think it's much more complex than that. Uh, so I'm interested in which way you form wonder and curiosity in this balance between other people's, uh, you know, the environment uh, of becoming something uh, and your own kind of values and identities and beings. But that's absolutely fascinating. It goes back again to the relationships that you mentioned, because if we're learning together and, and I bring something to the to the table, you bring something in together, we're, we're, going, to, we're going to get that motivation. My last question, uh, it's a little bit the et cetera section, but it's really an opportunity to ask you, uh, What's on the horizon for you? What are you thinking about? What is in your, your immediate or maybe longer term future? The, 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 the key thing for me right now is what we are talking about in the ways we can set up better collaborations and better ecosystems where schools and homes and communities are much more collaborative in supporting children's uh, journey uh, throughout childhood and into being an adult. So we have huge um, efforts to figure out research projects where we form communities and collaborations with multiple partners. And then we use the digital as an ability to document, to engage, to form portfolios. And if we're able to capture children's real life experiences and students' experience, our own experiences that we have when we go to sports and outdoor and the science center, do on digital, we're able to capture that in a more dynamic portfolio. And it's able to translate that into a credential, which means grades and competencies and you know, 
projects you are truly inspired to show us something you've done, then I think we are beginning to solve or unlock at least the opportunity for, for learning and education to be much more creative and inspirational. So, so we, we are trying to set up these types of connections between the partners in the ecosystem and think about the ways technology can be used much more as a flexible forms of assessments and connecting these pieces and an inherently personal lifelong portfolio that, um, that becomes kind of who you are and who you are going to become. Um, so, so in that spectrum, there's a lot of different ways to experiment with technologies, of talking to communities and, and changing education assessments. Yeah, I will ask you a follow-up on that. I mean, I imagine this is all underpinned by blockchain and, and coming up with some kind of universal credential system. How, how do we come up with a universal one rather than having disparate ones that might talk a different language or not connect with one another? That, that is a, uh, a very important question. It's something we form several roundtables around uh, right now. Uh, I think we need a common language. Uh, so we have done a big effort to unite professions and disciplines and partners around a common language of play, which is more about this, you know, it's actively engaging, it's about experimentation and iterations about things that are meaningful to you. And I think we are now on the journey to do the same thing for credentials to say there are particular kind of things that you learn socially, emotionally, cognitively, key piece of the curriculum. So that, that is kind of in a, in a whole learner um, credential. But to which degree we necessarily need to define them in one way, I think becomes a question. If we're able to have that framework for how societies you know, equip adults to be uh, citizens and, and, and workers and educate, uh, ready for education, I don't think we need to form the same standardized way of assessing each of these components as long as the vision as a map and the map look kind of a little bit the same. So we're actually creating kind of that profiling with a broad range of partners and then invite people to say, well, in your context, how would you, how would you document and measure this? If you are in South Africa or in Bangladesh or in China and US, they actually have very different languages, different mechanisms to do that. But if you have the same kind of, of uh, overall uh, mapping of it, then we can speak to each other. Then we can collaborate uh, without necessarily having one way of, of, of standardizing the, the, the individual measure and standardizing what it means to be a, a human being. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Ford. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. We're in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. The website is www.intrepidednews.com. Um, we look forward to your comments. Uh, send us uh, a text, an email, uh, hook, up, hook up with us on LinkedIn. And in the meantime, again, our website is www.coconut-thinking.design. And until very soon, bye-bye.